Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is the connective tissue of the supply chain with my friend Bart DeMunk. Bart is the chief industry officer at Project 44, and the connective tissue we're talking about is visibility. Visibility is the connective tissue of the supply chain, and nobody does visibility like P44. Project 44 operates the most trusted end-to-end visibility platform, tracking over 1 billion shipments annually for the world's leading brands. So check out my interview with Bart DeMunk. But... Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. Tusk Logistics is a national small parcel network made up of the very best regional small parcel carriers. Tusk delivers reliable service, predictable pricing, and proactive support at lower costs, sometimes up to 40% less than the big guys, UPS and FedEx. Implementation is easy, and the Tusk team is absolutely obsessed with customer service and putting the shipper first. Check them out at tusklogistics.com and click the Get Started button. I will put a link in the show notes so you can reach out and talk to my friends over at Tusk Logistics. So how's it going, Bart? It's going very well, Joe. How are you? Doing great, doing great. I'm excited to talk to you. Please introduce yourself and your company where you're calling from today. So very good. My name is Bart Chief Industry Officer for Project 44 and called in today from the home office in Keller, Texas in the DFW area. Ah, very nice. Wait, you guys are based in, in Texas? I thought you were based in Chicagoland. I am based remotely in the Dallas area. In my job, I, I travel quite a bit, so it doesn't really matter. doesn't matter where you live. Okay. You are correct. We are headquartered in a merchandise mart right by the river in Chicago, and that's where the company started. And hence, maybe we'll get into it, but hence the name Project 44, very connected to Chicago. Yep. I, I wanted to do a podcast that was to be like, what the hell is Project 44? Because there, for years, I thought, I know Jet's got this new thing, and it's Project 44 or P44, and I had no idea what you guys are doing. So please explain in layman's term exactly what you guys do. Yeah, our mission at the simplest, at the core, would be to be the connective tissue as supply chain. I've been in supply chain for over 30 years, and I think most of us have been in supply chain for a while. Kind of although it's a chain, right? And the chain is made out of these pieces that all stick together. We do know that a lot of times that isn't the case. They don't work very There's a weak link. Even, <laughs> even within an organization, right, where we're supposed to be this connected organization, you still see a lot of companies that are very siloed. And a big part of that is because there is no connectivity from, or good connectivity that is according to what we need today to bring all of those pieces together and create really that data highway that's needed to create connectivity and be able to build that connective tissue. So Project 44, you guys are the visibility. When people say our visibility solution, I think a lot of times they mean Project 44, am I right to say that? Yeah, you can. Uh, We're the leader out there in the market. There's obviously other solutions out there, but I think a lot of times people see Project 44 as the visibility player. And when they talk about visibility, see Project 44 as one of those companies. I would say what we're really about is, again, at the core connected tissue within supply chain, really creating value to supply chain companies. A big part of that is, by providing visibility and mainly the data that comes from that. But it isn't necessarily just limited to that. Because again, when you just have visibility, when you just have data, that becomes very, I would say, normal, right? A commodity, uh, so to speak, after a while. So it's all around what is the value you create for companies, and especially in this economy, what is the impact you can create for companies? And I'm talking about impact on Cash flow, because that's everyone's concern. Yep. Before we hit record, I joked with you that a hundred people in a row, this was maybe a year or so ago, 
100 people in a row said, Joe, I want to talk to you about visibility. I was like, hey, we can't all talk about visibility every podcast. And you pointed out that you said, hey, that's just the beginning of what you guys are doing. And again, getting back to the title, you guys look at yourself as the connective tissue of the supply chain. It's not just visibility because if I look and go, hey, great, I can tell you my truck is not going to deliver on time. Actually, it looks like it stopped. <laughs> it's It stopped maybe at that guy's house. I have no idea. That's that's just the beginning, right? I that that might be helpful, so you can explain to the boss that the driver's not going to get there, and it looks like the car's the truck is stopped. But we want more than that, right? You're absolutely right. Now, for some people, have no idea where their trucks are, right? It's very important. Uh, I was talking recently. I was in Sao Paulo for an event, and someone was talking to me, a European company that specializes in expedited trucking. So if they have 100 shipments a day, he had to call 100 carriers over and over again to understand, where is the truck? Is it going to get there in time? And to him, it was mind-blowing that you could have a visibility solution where it would show him on a website exactly where every truck was, but where he only had to worry about those trucks that had an estimated time of arrival or ETA that was diverging from what was originally planned. And so instead of having people having to make all these calls. Now he immediately had that information at his fingertips and he could start working on maybe the three or four that were having an issue. So again, it depends a little bit, Joe, where you're coming from. If you don't have visibility, that becomes very important. But for people that have had visibility for a while and have a good understanding where the trucks are, it's a lot more important to say, how do I use that data in the rest of my supply chain to make better decisions? And one thing, especially, that we're seeing is how can people use that data to make better inventory decisions? Because that's been the biggest issue in the last year. And that's why we've seen logistics costs go up so dramatically because a big part of it, almost one third now, is inventory holding costs. Oh, yeah. In inventory carrying costs are, in some, in many cases, much higher than transportation costs. We tend to look at our industry as the center of the universe, but if you look at supply chains, that they're the dog, we're the tail. And the, and by the way, we're a super important tail. I mean, the, the expectations are all upon us and the supply chain doesn't work without that integration of the logistics piece. Let's come back and talk more about this in a minute. But first, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined the juggernaut that is Project 44. Sure, Joe. And you might be surprised because looking at my name, you probably think I am from Texas. <laughs> to emulate the, the accent, but most people, they understand I'm not from here. And that's because I was originally born in Belgium. I'm from Antwerp, second largest port uh, in Europe, the largest exporting port in Europe. That is my hometown. That's where I was born about 54 years ago. I did my whole education in Belgium, 12 years of Jesuit school. Then I went to the Catholic University of Leuven. Uh, I got my degree, my master's in economics and an MBA. There was no supply chain studies at the time, right? So people like us, they kind of got in supply chain almost by accident because even the name back then, early 90s, supply chain wasn't a very well-used name. People talked about manufacturing and logistics, not necessarily about supply chain. And so I started in supply chain working for Ernst & Young, where I had really got exposed to a lot of different industry, a lot of different companies, mainly in Belgium, but a lot of them being multinationals, learned a lot about processes and how these companies work, then went on to work for G Capital. And that's really how I got involved with logistics. G Capital at the time, and this was a time where GE was still investing in asset-based businesses in Europe, long time ago, uh, and they decided to form a logistics company that provided logistics services for all their GE manufacturing businesses. And so they did that as a joint venture with 3PL in the U.S. called Penske Logistics, probably fairly familiar to most, and we formed Penske Logistics Europe. I was part of the first 10 people on board. We started with the 3PL, which was a, a model that we copied from the Reading routing centers. We started implementing the I2 TMS solution. And before you know it, we were starting to buy asset-based trucking companies that provided trucking services that also had warehouse services. And before I knew it, I was running operations at a couple of these sites. So I was like literally at the ground working with hundreds and hundreds of drivers, looking at how to make the business more efficient 
I was also trained as a good GE guy in Six Sigma. So we did a lot of process improvement work. And then we started applying technology, Joe, in the 90s when logistics wasn't quite as sexy and technology logistics definitely wasn't as sexy as it is now. And that's really when I fell in love with logistics. I saw that magical combination of these improved logistics processes and what the power of technology as a supporting tool could bring. I then joined several technology companies in Europe. Meantime, I had met my wife, who is from Fort Worth, Texas, originally. And when we had kids, we were living in England. And we said, maybe we should go somewhere where we have family. That's how we decided to move to Texas 20 years ago. And with that, my son will be turning 20 in two months' time. So pretty exciting time for him. And I stayed on with the company I was working for at the time, a company called Alemica. It was a... They were trying to be the connective tissue for the chemical industry. It was started by 21 of the largest chemical manufacturers in the world. And then switched to PepsiCo. So then I was on the shipper side, the other side of the equilibrium for 10 years. And during those 10 years, doing a lot of different projects, I was also a Gartner seat holder. And then, you know, Gartner approached me and said, hey, we're looking for someone that can lead our transportation technology coverage within Gartner on our supply chain research side. And I joined them in 2014. And I was a VP of research with Gartner for eight years, looking at all of the different transportation technologies from TMSs and routing solutions, last mile visibility, telematics, freight audit and payment, you name it. I covered it. Some people might know me as that guy <laughs> that creates that magic quadrant. I did that for TMS, multi-enterprise supply chain business networks, as well as the first new MQ in 20 years in logistics, which was the real-time visibility magic quadrant. At the same time, as you remember, during COVID, a lot of things changed. And one of the things that changed is that people all of a sudden started really seeing logistics as something that was key to their, the success of their business. And so a lot more people started looking into logistics, buying logistics technology. And that's where I go like, you know what? Kind of too young to retire with Gartner. I want to get give it one more go to go back into the industry and, and make a difference. And where else to go than in, invisibility, which I really saw as a an area where there was so much potential based on the data that these companies were gathering. And I really saw Project 44 as best in class, not just in that category, but I, I got to know as a client, you know, uh, of Gartner, the the team. I got to see how they operated. I got to see how they worked with our advice, worked with customers. And that's when I decided to leave Gartner and join Project 44 early in that last year. Yeah. So how, when did you join? Like a year ago? Yeah. In March, end of March of uh, 2022. Wow. Wow. So you've seen a lot of growth there. And um, that companies, I, I'm just thinking my own perspective, looking at uh, the people I've connected to on LinkedIn. Am I right to say that Project 44 started at just with domestic travel and that was what they were doing for a while you you are correct so so let's go back to the beginning right and we talked a little bit about project 44 and alluded to the origin in chicago where jet mechanicalists started the company and and really if people this was before our time joe we're, we're way too young for this but <laughs> project 44 was really introduced by eisenhower in the 50s so we had route 66 probably Worldwide known, I, I traveled it when I was in my early twenties, traveling to the U.S. as a as a young student and traveled it. But they knew that in the early fifties, the amount of cars there were and and just the infrastructure that was needed. And then obviously Eisenhower had seen the power of the new highway infrastructure in Germany, how it helped the Germans advance the troops going west. And he's like, hey, we need a new highway infrastructure in the U.S. And so that project was called Project 44. Ah, that, first that makes sense. Out of that was Highway 44 going out of Chicago. And so when Jet started the company, what he wanted to do is build this new super highway for data and information exchange for the supply chain. Because he had seen the same that, you know, the way people were doing things. And he came out of the logistics industry. Mm -hmm. It was very manual with either just, you know, Excel spreadsheets, paper, EDI, it was slow. And he's like, that's not in line with what people need today. And that's how Project 44 was born. Right. Before we get into more about Project 44, you said you're from Belgium. 
what one thing do you miss about Belgium besides friends and family? The food, of course. Oh. I think we have some food in the world. So I will admit that when I travel to Belgium, the first place I go, sometimes even before I go to the families, go <laughs> to some of my favorite restaurants. I'd rather go with them. But but yes, that is obviously it's the, the friends and family first, but but food and especially living in a place like Texas, we don't have kind of that fine dining. We, that's not just you have barbe- most you have barbecue for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Barbecue, Tex-Mex, steak restaurants. I do get the, the privilege of being able to travel to places like Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, someplace in California where they do have that style of food. So, but yeah, I would say that's that's probably what I miss most. So I noticed you have a guitar on your wall behind you. Do you play it? Not anymore, Joe. So I, I started playing classical guitar at the age of eight. And that's kind of where you play notes rather than words. Went to electric guitar when I was at university and really started getting deep into blues music. And I realized that I was really crap at playing guitar. So about 30 years ago, I just gave up playing and, and I spent all my time and money buying CDs at the time. You know, for those yes. people who don't know what CDs, that round disc you would put in there. Now people are just streaming and going to concerts, right? But I still love music. It's probably besides logistics and tech and, and, and food is, is my 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 third passion is music. I go to a lot of concerts. Who's your favorite bands? And I love these things. That's why they're uh, on the back of my wall. And I I built this way before we were even doing all these video conferences, right? So I never you thought... You didn't just make it for this uh, this interview? All right. No, I, I did not. But but look at it. If you see that Gretsch behind me, it's a to me, it's not just an instrument. To me, I look at it. It's a beautiful piece of art. And I will tell you one thing, Joe. If you can walk in your office, for those of us... Who, who still work maybe or, or part of our time remotely, if you can walk in your office every day and you see whatever is on the back of your wall, for some it might be a picture of your kids or a guitar, whatever that is, and you start your day with a big smile on your face rather than having to go through traffic and being stressed out by the time you get to your office. There you go. It's, it's one of the best things ever. Yeah, that's why I've got this. With my canvas thing here, the ultimate luxuries, time spent with friends and family. My daughter made that for me. because, And I remember... She wanted to make a, she goes, you like quotations. And I said, yeah, yeah, make a quotation for me. She goes, well, what should it be? And I said, and I gave her one. She goes, no, one you make, yours. I go, well, I don't know. I don't have a quotation. <laughs> like all the good ones are taken. So she goes, well. Have you ever noticed, Joe, you'll never see a gravestone that says, I wish I would have spent more time in the office. Exactly. Never happens, exactly. right? So who's your favorite bands before we get back to business? So, so my favorite, and I just switched it out because normally behind me, for those who've seen me on, on some of the other podcasts or webinars, etc., was uh, Eric Clapton, uh, Fender, Stratocaster, Blackie. So Eric Clapton is, is, is my number one, but I love Eric Clapton. I love blues music. I'm a big fan of Foo Fighters. I'm, I'm fairly eclectic, though. I go from classical music all the way to Metallica and everything in between. Uh, I like I like that blues music too. That's what I listen to a, a lot. And it's funny because it seems like, well, they're not making any new blues music, but they are. There's a whole bunch of guys out there, but we can talk about it's this offline. Right? It's not necessarily traditional blues, right? It's more like blues influences a lot of music. And it's maybe not pure blues, like what we think of Albert King or Freddie King or B.B. King and those guys, but there, there's a lot of blues. Next Generation's it. picking it up. Yeah. So I want to switch gears and talk about the ELD mandate and why that's an important milestone in our visibility. So talk first about what is the ELD mandate and why that was so important with you guys at Project 44. Yeah, so the ELD mandate or ELD stands for Electronic Login Device. Before there were already... A lot of companies using telematics, mainly the very large, you know, trucking companies and large private fleets. Uh, Frito-Lay was one that adopted telematics very early on in the late 90s. And they did that mainly from a compliance perspective, as well as to help them calculate payroll. They never did that for tracking purposes because in the beginning, it was all satellite communication. When you were pinging a vehicle, it was incredibly expensive to do that. But with ELD and as technology evolved and these devices became smaller and cheaper and we now have these widespread terrestrial networks at very low cost, the ELD really was a mandate that because of the lack of overall safety on the highway was going to help you know, to monitor the amount of hours drivers were on the road, 
because a lot of the, the accidents that happen and that are attributed to truck drivers often have to do with driver fatigue. And so there were a lot of drivers who were just doing way too many hours. And so hours of service was something that's been around for a long time, but there wasn't a real way of monitoring that because a lot of people were having manual paper-based hours of service records that, to be honest, weren't always accurate. Well, they would keep two books, one for one that I'm going to bill to, right? These are my hours. And the other, which is uh, if I get pulled over. So we've always had hours of service, but the ELD mandate, which I'm thinking was 2017? It took place, yes, in 2017. And then just years it was ago. There was a lot of back and forth pushing and pulling because no one in the trucking business necessarily wanted it. But there was a sense that it would save lives. And I don't think it has saved lives. We talked about that before we hit record. That's a whole nother podcast. But what it did do is allow companies like Project 44 to get their um, technology into a lot of these ELD, I don't even call it the, the app, not the apps, but I guess their uh, units. Yeah, the backbone. So so maybe I'll, I'll give a little bit of background to that. So specifically for um, domestic transportation, because you've got to remember within Project 44, we cover all modes of transportation, whether it's ocean, air, even last mile, right? But at least for domestic and U.S. transportation now, because every truck that had to do hours of service has an ELD device in there, now you have a source of data you can pull from. Right. Where before, maybe you had to either depend on an app or depend on a a, a driver just, you know, through telephone calls, updating dispatch. Now, which could be could be off. (laughs) off. Now we just go to the backbone of these telematics uh, providers. And by the way, we have access to over eleven hundred of those different vendors. I didn't even know there was eleven hundred vendors. Oh, there's more than those even. I, I would say when I did the market guide for transportation mobility at Gartner, which included telematics, my guesstimate was always that there was about a thousand different vendors in the U.S. and about 900 in Europe. I think there's been some consolidation going on the last few years. Now, 1,100, I would say probably is about 95 plus percent of all the, the ELD vehicles out there. But what it really allows is just you can go in the backbone of those those vendors and pull the information specific for that shipper and that carrier rather than the, so the driver doesn't have to do anything. The dispatch doesn't have to do anything. And by the way, those other updates that you're providing, we just recently at the Gardner conference and one of our customers talked about and they were saying before our carriers used to send us 214 messages. And by the way, you know, uh, Joe, you know what it costs every time someone sends an EDI message? What do you think it costs on average in the U.S. for an EDI message? I have no idea. Today? Five, ten bucks? I don't know. It's about 80 cents per message. But there's right? a and lot guys, of those, though. <laughs> no, they have millions of them, right? So API is around one cent. It's not completely free, but it's a lot less. But, but also, they don't have to do anything. So now they're saying, well, through Project 44, we know exactly and a lot more accurately when a product is being delivered and we just use that and then automatically start processing one, when we can invoice the customer and when we can also generate the accounts payable so we can pay the carrier. Whereas before, in some cases, people are still waiting for an invoice from the carrier that might take a week and they can't invoice the customer until they receive the carrier invoice with the uh, the sign of bill of lading, right? Or proof of delivery. So there's a lot of differences it makes, but for a carrier, why why is it good for them? It lowers costs. Obviously, by coming onto a network like Project 44, they can connect once and now connect to many of the customers. Because even from EDI, and, and I'm not saying EDI is going to go away. No, it's not. A lot of EDI <laughs> workflow. But but imagine if you're implementing a TMS today, a new, and you go into your, your carriers and say, "Hey, we just want to do simple tender." tender EDI messages with you, most carriers are going to go like, yeah, it'll take six to nine months. I'll put you on the stack. They just don't have the resources to do it, right? Yeah, it's it's very interesting because you, you mentioned um, not the ELD. We talked a little bit about this before we hit record. ELD mandate hasn't necessarily saved lives, but I, I suspect Project 44 has. And the reason I say that is we used to ask the drivers to pull over 
and um, make a phone call, say where I'm at. And I suspect some were getting called directly while they're driving that big rig. None of us want to be driving down the expressway with our, our loved ones and see a truck driver distracted. And if he's getting phone calls asking for an update, and by the way, I can't, I can hardly drive my own damn car. I can't imagine what it's like to drive one of those. And I suspect you guys have saved lives because I don't no longer have to make that phone call. Project 44 tells me exactly where that guy's at. And I'm not saying it normally happens or even, but rarely I suspect a driver would say, I'm a little behind. I'm going to try and make up some time. So I'm going to tell him I'm an hour away when I'm really about an hour and 45 minutes away. So we don't get, <laughs> we trust them, but we're going to verify where they're at. We don't have to ask where they're at. We know where they're at. You're absolutely correct, Joe. It is definitely one of the, the, the many use cases we see also for the carers to come on board because they don't have to do those check calls anymore with the driver. They get the, the, the updated information. Some people might say, or for example, if you have a private fleet, well, if we have telematics, only have access to that same data. Well, when I was at PepsiCo, you know, for our Frito-Lay private fleet, fleet had all the data from the telematics. The guys that were on our transportation on the TMS side didn't have the update. So when your customer is calling, right, it typically is, you know, you go, you know how it goes, right? The customer calls your customer service. Where is it? They go, I don't know. Let me call transportation. They say, let me connect you to dispatch. Dispatch go, I don't have the information because my fleet system isn't connected to my TMS. Let me just call the driver, right? And then the driver doesn't pick up because maybe he's on a rest break, whatever. So all of that has been now automated. So it's it's your customer doesn't even have to call anymore because they might get the update from his supplier. And they may be saying, I'm not interested where it is. You just let me know if it's going to be late. And then we'll work around it. So am I... I'm not used Project 44 because I've been doing this for a while. But does Project 44 integrate into my TMS? Yes, exactly. So we have over 85 partnerships and integrations with different TMS vendors and ERP vendors. So even companies that don't have a TMS, we can just grab the information from the ERP or some people do a fast start by just providing, you know, even an Excel spreadsheet where they have all the shipment information. Once we have... The basics, which is an, uh, an ID load identifier, origin destination, date and time of pickup, date and time of drop-off, we can connect to the carrier. We can provide all of that information on the platform. But yes, we integrate with shipper TMSs, 3PL TMSs, broker TMSs, and carrier TMSs. So companies don't have to do any of that work. They, we have existing partnership, existing API integrations. That's already built. That pipeline's already built. So it allows that that flow of information. I just have to, tur- just have to turn it on. I don't, there's no integration. I just say, I got an account with Project 44. They gave me some code. I turn it on. Boom, I'm working. Exactly. Exactly. And the same goes for those carriers, right? So if they are one of those 1,100 telematics providers, a lot of time it is just, you know, kind of registered themselves on the website saying, hey, this is the telematics I have, and then creating that connection. Yeah. And right now, I think anybody who has a TMS, maybe even a WMS, we assume all the new technologies, all the new WMS, all the TMS, the newer ones were designed with the idea that they will easily integrate with all these, I'll call them killer apps. I think Project 44 was one of, if not the first killer app to go into TMS. I know there's others. There's a whole bunch of others that are on my podcast all the time, but I think it really changed the way they develop TMS. Now, the way they're developing the transportation management systems is we have a framework. It does seven or eight of these functions. But if there's a new killer app, like whatever, Project 44, but there's going to be others, we can integrate very easily. So you guys have kind of changed the whole industry because I don't remember anyone talking about integrations like that, simple ones. where We're integrated into all the ELDs and all the TMSs. I don't remember that discussion prior to Project 44. Well, I'm glad you noticed that, Joe. And part of that is because of the history. And, and I don't think I answered your question initially, but, but yeah, the way uh, Project 44 was started was really focused first on LTL and volume LTL. But it really was started with the, with the network and the API connectivity. So at the base, right, it's a little bit like when you build a high-rise, you start with the foundation. 
and you want to get that route right. The foundation of a good visibility platform should be building the network, building the right API connections that will eventually lead to the top quality data that you want to ingest. And we'll talk a little bit about that, why quality of data is important, especially if you're going to start predicting and prescribing things based on that data. So that's how, how it started. And obviously, by having that, that background of being specialist in API connectivity, that's where the, the same APIs gave them that capability to connect very quickly, not just with carriers, not with, with shippers, but also because they had this really open mindset of partnering. That's where you know we quickly became one of the most connected visibility applications out there because Jet had that open mindset of really building partnership because we understood that visibility is very complementary to TMS. We're not replacing a TMS. Right. We're complementary to a TMS. A TMS is really good in kind of workflows, right? It's like you optimize, you tender it, you get a tender accept or reject back, you get a 214, you basically pay the carrier, et cetera. But we're then adding all that real time into it. So very early, it was vital to say, well, who owns a lot of the freight? It's sitting in those TMSs. So if we make it easier for shippers to connect to those TMSs, it's easier to have that those volumes flow into the visibility platforms and make adoption easier because technologies can be cool. And I've seen that when I was working for partners that sometimes you have very cool technology, but it's sometimes very hard to become very adopted because there's maybe certain things from a technological perspective or just, I don't have the resources or other reasons why companies can't adopt the technology. Yeah, and we're seeing now just a flood of companies starting these killer apps. And uh, Green Screens over Don Salvucci, uh, Favier was on the podcast talking about just this. And again, she'd come from Manugistics and 3G. So she'd been part of the TMS framework. We talked before we hit record, we talked about Tomorrow IO. They're gonna connect into these systems. We're starting to see an absolute flood of these systems. And again, you guys were probably the first in, but you guys didn't stop on the domestic side. By the way, as soon as I started to finally comprehend what Project 44 was doing, all of a sudden I, I, I follow Project 44 on LinkedIn. I follow Jet. And I was all of a sudden like, now what are they doing overseas? So you guys went well beyond just the domestic. Talk about that. I mean, it's still a relatively new company, but you guys are global, right? Yeah, correct. So uh, nine years ago, founded in Chicago, first was U.S. specific on the domestic side, like I said, gone from LTL to volume LTL, then into uh, full truckload. But then really what was very obvious is like you had all these companies that were saying, well, we do domestic visibility and some do ocean visibility, some do air but what we saw and what I saw as an analyst in the market is that large multimodal multinational companies were going like, yeah, we, we used to have a system just like TMS. We used to have a system for air, one for ocean, one for North American domestic, one for Europe domestic. And all of a sudden they're going like, well, hold on a minute. Now we have 10 different vendors. Why can't we do that in one single system? That's where customer demand was going. That's where the vision was going. And so... The team at Project 44 had a, had a good understanding of that by listening to the customer and hence started saying, how do we do that? Do we develop that ourselves? Well, if we want to become the best at Ocean, that probably is going to take another five, six years. Why not buy the leading company in oh, Ocean? Oh, yeah, Visibility? I think I interviewed uh, one of the guys from Clear Metal, one of the founders. Adam Cumber. Yeah, yeah, I interviewed Adam just before they got bought by Project 44. All right. So Clear Metal was acquired, Ocean Insights, who had a lot of ocean data, they got acquired. There was other acquisitions, like on the last mile side with Convey, to really build that vision of providing, you know, on a global scale, all modes of transportation and visibility. And then last year, there was the, the last missing piece, once we had done all the acquisitions, now put that on a single unified platform which is what movement is. The movement platform is all about bringing all of that data from those different modes in one layer and then putting a unified view on it. So if you're doing a movement, let's say from inland China to inland US, and it has, it could have a drayage leg, a rail leg, an ocean part, you know, your terminal visibility, you can follow that all in one 
single screen with all the information. And you can drill down from the shipment level into the order level, into the SKU level and have all of that information in one place. Or you can have just an API that sends it back to your system if you want to start acting based on the data. You'll let it flow in your TMS and your supply chain planning system and now start using that that same data to start acting and creating decisions based on it. Yeah. So I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Greenscreens. That's greenscreens.ai. Greenscreens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using green screens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy side and sell side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out green screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, I earlier in my career, I was a facilitator. I did lean. So we would do these workshops and we would look at order to cash. So we are doing it mostly in automotive. So from the time you get the order to the time you get paid is what we would look at. And if it's 16 weeks, 18 weeks, 20 weeks, you want it down to 20% less than 30% less than 40% less, right? And we all want that. And the problem is when you're looking at a whole bunch of siloed data sources, just as you talked about before, it's not easy to make observations. It's not easy easy to say this is what the data is telling us because the data is not that good. But when you get it all on one platform, the movement platform that you just described, what's nice about it is now I have data and I say my last 20,000 transactions look like this. And now I can start to say, Ooh, can I start to feed my machine learning and start to make some some idea of what's going to happen in the future? And we've always had data, but the problem is our data has never been that useful. When it comes to AI and machine learning, you need good data. We have the computing power now. Now we need that good data. And it seems like getting it from a whole bunch of siloed sources would be like just garbage in, right? You're correct. And, and the other part is, you know, we, we traditionally have looked at historic data. But look at the last three years. You can't depend on those last three years, right? Because data's gone up and down and, and lead times have gone up. They've gone down. Rates have gone up. They've gone down. So how do you base yourself on all data? That's why people say, no, to be dynamic and agile, we need to have the most recent real-time data and even predictive data to make the right decision. Because to be honest, three years ago when COVID hit, for some people being resilient, meant buy all the inventory you can buy because we know there's going to be manufacturing side closures and we know there's going to be disruptions in, in ocean transportation, like from China or port closures. So buy all the stuff you can. Next thing you know, things were opening again. Lead times were going down. And now we're sitting on too much inventory. So people are very aware of that. And so pretty much every company out there, if you look at their P&L, you know, their inventory on the balance sheet's gone up, which means their costs have gone up. Other costs have gone up. Labor costs have gone up. So everyone's margins now under pressure. So they're like, what, what's one thing that we can do to change that? Well, we can be more agile, more flexible in the way we plan and forecast, whether that's demand planning, understand what is the, the customer really buying? When are they buying? What are they buying? And how do we need to fulfill it? Right? Because we went from just in time to just in case, but just in case often meant you now have to have the inventory at every single one of your fulfillment location, which we know it's almost impossible to then create a profit because your costs are going to go up. So we need better insights, but also from an inventory, from your replenishment planning. If I now know that we can predict, if you're saying today, I'm going to go from Ningbo to LA, or I'm going to go from Shanghai to, let's say, Chicago. We can predict very accurately. Now, there can be certain things that happen. You never know if the port's actually going to close like we saw in Seattle, LA a few weeks ago. But we can very accurately say, based on all the volumes and our predictive intelligence, how much time is going to take from origin to destination. 
And so instead of just hard programming your system, say it's seven weeks, we can say, no, it's 6.2 weeks or it's 7.5 weeks. Well, imagine what does that five days of inventory make a difference in your supply chain? Imagine a company, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, mention a company that has a lot of inventory motion, Caterpillar, and they've been doing things in an incredible way for many years, even when there was no visibility and they were able to ship product big change and, and replacement parts for these big machines within 24, 48 hours without hardly any technology. But those guys have $2 billion worth of inventory in transit. <laughs> Imagine if you can just reduce that by 1%, that's $20 million, right? And most often you can reduce that inventory by 10 to 30%. So am I saying we're already there yet? We're getting there, right? And it's also part of helping people to understand how they can use the data so they can maybe lower safety stocks or provide some of the data in their replenishment planning solutions so they can use it to, to more accurately plan. But it shows you the type of value this data can unlock if used in the right. Right. You know, one of the things I didn't say earlier, but I should have, and it's significant, is in the past, we've had a lot of he said, she said scenarios where they say, hey, I delivered that on... On Monday, I have the paperwork here that says so, and they're like, oh, we didn't get it on Monday. And now I can say, look, Project 44 data says it got there Monday. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah. It's, we, but we have so many handoffs in our business. It's really helpful to know what's actually happening versus Bart, Bart wants to say, I delivered it to Joe and it's his fault, right? And I want to say, no, Bart didn't get it here on time, right? Rather than have that, that he said, she said, Project 44 is that one source of truth where you say, okay, we're not going to argue. We're going to look at the data. And if I have, and I know you're not perfect yet, but if I have perfect data, I can start to make decisions and we're never going to have perfect data. But if I can have more perfect data, I can make better decisions. And what I thought was interesting is you've said it the whole time, you talk a lot about inventory. So initially, when you think of when I think of Project 44, I think of where's my truck? Where's my, where's my freight? Now you guys are kind of moving upstream and saying, you know, what's just as big a problem, maybe bigger, is inventory. And inventory is everything. Again, inventory carrying costs is the difference between success and failure in a lot of businesses. And during COVID, it said we moved from just in time to just in case, but it was worse than that because we have stuff that is increasingly perishable. Selling sweaters in Michigan right now is really tough because it got hot. I needed those sweaters to get here in in late September, early October, so they could buy them then. And we have obviously anything that's food, drugs, medicine, all that stuff is perishable, but so is fashion. So is tech. Getting a computer six months late means it's last year's computer and I don't want it. Yeah. And, and what you're saying, right? I, I refer to it, I got a model I call the data value pyramid. So where visibility really started was at the bottom, very transactional. We loved it. We loved it. But uh, yeah, now you're saying it's just the beginning. <laughs> at the transportation place. But now, and that creates value. It creates tremendous value for people, both in a quantitative way, as well as qualitative, because your customers want to know where, where their stuff is, right? It's, it's wisdom. Where's my order, right? Everyone wants to know that because we're all so programmed by Amazon to know where our product is what people perceive is we know it at any point in time. Although I will say a lot of what, what Amazon ships is still UPS and you know, oh, it's going to get there by 10 p.m. Could be 8 a.m., could be 6 p.m. But people have been programmed that way. But now imagine if you can use that data higher up in the supply chain. Now you can start doing it from logistics execution, not just transportation. You pull it into the yard. You pull it all the way to the dock door. So now you're lining your warehouse and your yard in transportation. Now you go into your planning. So now your TMS knows, oh, well, we always see an issue at that location on Friday at 10 a.m. Well, don't send it there at 10 a.m. Maybe ship it there and get it for an arrival at 1 p.m. because there's no bottleneck. But now you go even further up and you need less data. You need more aggregated data. Now we're going to start doing it in supply chain planning, where we're using it in sales and operations planning. We're using it in inventory planning and replenishment planning manufacturing plan, like you mentioned, automotive, where we can truly say we're going to order it just in time because we know the inventory we have, what's in transit, 
when it's coming very accurately. And as you go up in that supply chain, the amount of value you unlock goes up exponentially. And that's why we see not only more and more people buying these solutions, but we're seeing a lot of upsell opportunity within an organization that bought visibility at the executional level. And now they're saying, how do we drive that up? How do we unlock more value based on the data you provide? Yep. And am I wrong to say that you are partners with companies like Tive and these Internet of Things? Sometimes I call it the Internet of Trucking, but all of these all of these things that enable us to track stuff even more precisely, uh, you connect to all of those? Not to all of them, but we have partners. So for us, it's important to, to understand when we're tracking the information, what the best way is to do it, and then go directly to the source. So like you said, for domestic transportation, the best source would be to go to the ELD device, and we can pull that information. But here's an example. We have a carrier. They have a fleet, 90% is regular tractor trailers. They all have ELD because they're HOS drivers. So we pull it all from the ELD, but they have 10% of their trucks that are flatbed trucks that do a lot more regional local work and they don't have ELD because they have a, right, uh, an exemption. It, right. exemption. Well, how do we track that if they don't have an ELD? And by the way, there are fleets that are exempt, but that are still implementing telematics for safety. But if they don't, then yes, we could put in a Tive, a Rombi, whoever, because we don't create hardware. We use their hardware, pull their information. But the power of that is even if it's two mixed sources of the data or three or four or five, we absorb all of that again through API on our platform. So the customer has one single view, one single screen to look at. That's the power of it. So we work with the customer in understanding what does your carrier base look like? What is the best source of the data? to get to and then provide that back to the customer. I love it. I've been saying this sometimes on my podcast lately. So in the, in your past and in my past, we had factories and we had those four walls and we managed the inputs the best we could. We did a pretty good job on it. And we managed the process within the factory and then there was the outputs. And we could be very predictable about things after a while. Uh, what came in the front door, what left out the back door. The supply chain is just the outdoor factory. The challenge is there's a whole bunch of obstacles that are, isn't making it easy for us. This is making that outdoor factory much more predictable, which means we can make better decisions and we know where our stuff's at. And again, that it's it's a factory that stretches all the way across the world. <laughs> You're right. And supply chains are more connected from two different perspectives, Joe. One is, you know, your last mile, you can't provide last mile of product efficiently to a consumer if you have problems in your first mile. So the, the, the more forewarning you have what's going to happen, the better you can execute your last mile. So these things are not separated. They're all one supply chain. The second part is when you have a supplier that has an issue maybe in China or something is being affected by the war in Ukraine or by an embargo with Russia, all of a sudden a drop falls in Russia and the ripple effect right. hits the world because our supply chains are so much more connected than 30 years ago to the point where you could go and start a business in your basement, assuming you have a basement, Joe, tonight and tomorrow you're shipping all over the world. We couldn't have done that 10, 20 years ago, right? So you got to imagine that. And so, again, by providing going all the way to the source and having that capability to understand the data, and using that and predicting that as to the impact on your supply chain is incredibly powerful. Now, are we going to be able to predict everything? No, right? Not, and not to just be yet. honest. <laughs> no, and the thing is, Joe, that if you look last last year, uh, a report came out from the United Nations, right? That said between now and the end of the decade, by 2030, you're going to see an increase in number of disasters by 30%. Unfortunately, 80% of global disasters are weather-related. Right. And that's sometimes very hard to forecast. So what's happening now with the Panama Canal, with the drought that impacts the draft, right? There's already more than a foot less draft. Yeah, we're going to take the small boats through right now or go all the there. There's some ships that are going all the way around South America, not taking the canal. Exactly. But the other thing is the ships are still going through the canal. They just can have less capacity, less weight on the ship because they can't go as deep. What does that mean for supply chain? All of a sudden, 
it might lead to capacity issues because you need more boats to handle the same amount of volume. Plus your cost goes up because they're not charging you less if you have less containers on that ship. That cost to go to the Panama Canal is still the same amount. So it, one small thing that you think, oh, that's just a weather-related thing on one country, can have impacts on our global supply chain. Oh, yeah. And by the way, we're, we are these, these global supply chains. We know about Russia, obviously. We know what's going on in the Ukraine. So we also know there's problems with we're not allowed to buy in certain regions of China, right? So we can't work with Uyghur slave labor. Um, I think there's some prohibitions now around the Congo with some of the slave labor in those battery material plants. And we also know that we're not allowed to sell to certain people in the Middle East, right? So we have a, a huge responsibility within the supply chain. And I joke about it, but it's no joke. It's becoming a compliance culture. Are you complying to the rules we've created? And it's not just going to be from the from the federal governments that we work with. It's going to be from the supply chains that we work with. They're going to say, I want... I want to know about what's going on in my supply chain because I'm from automotive. I can tell you tier one companies, Magna, TRW, these are huge companies. Tier twos are huge companies. They could be billion dollar companies, but tier threes and fours and where the material come from, we don't always have visibility into that. And we need visibility into that. We need that because we we have to report on it in Europe. We have to report on it, right? Absolutely correct. Yeah. And it's, it's a good example would be like in, in the food supply chain, right? Where you're seeing... Let's say, you know, I'm Belgian, so obviously people think of chocolate. So you're a big chocolate manufacturer. Where do you buy your cacao beans? Well, you got to buy those in Africa. So now it's your responsibility as the manufacturer and the end producer of the chocolate to make sure that all of those small little farmers that, that provide those beans to you are actually sustainable in the way they farm. How do you go and do that, right, without data? It's very, very difficult. And so we're seeing more and more regulations within the supply chain. They're also, unfortunately, driving up costs. So people are going like, well, if we need to check all this out, data has become more important. We need the sources of data to do it. But then we also need data in, in a more intelligent way so that where we see, because of regulation, costs go up, we can offset that by making better decisions. Yep. You know what this reminds me of, Bart, is you've taken on a lot of new projects in your life, probably none bigger than this one. But you know, when you get the first few months on the job, you're trying to put your arms around everything and trying to pull it all together. And then at some point you're like, I want to come up with some, some metrics. I want to come up with some understanding what's going on here. And at some point you go, wow, it's all done. I'm, we're, we're in order. We're growing, right? I feel like you guys are in that mode of putting your arms around the world's <laughs> world supply chain. And I, I, I don't want to predict what you guys are going to do next, but I suspect it's just going to be more of the same, which is more data to make decisions from. And who knows where it goes because we have so many challenges in the supply chain. And if we had more perfect, more perfect data, we could make better decisions. Yeah, I think that the key word is more. Right, because customers aren't asking more. Provide us more value. We expect it now. We we know it's possible. <laughs> so it's more data, more high quality data, more granular data. So we went from like ocean data. Now we provide terminal visibility data. So we go granular in the terminal. So you know everything that happens step by step with what's happening with that container. So it's more from every angle. It's broader. It's not just oh, tell me what's happening in the truck. Also, tell me what's happening in the yard. In the future, it'll be tell me what's happening in the warehouse, right? So more and more and more, because that's the only way that you can create more value. If, if we wouldn't do that, imagine what if you started with visibility and that's all you're going to remain at. How do you create that added value? And, and there again, I think that's the, the great opportunity. And I always talk and I've always talked about visibility is a journey, right? Again, you start with the network. Then you look at the data. Then you're saying, how do we get the insights from the data? Now, how do we prescribe data and start executing based on the data? And then in the future, we'll see a lot of automation. And again, I'm not saying that we're going to automate transportation. I would say AI, I always define it as artificial intelligence in the warehouse where we replace our labor that we have a lot of shortage in with robots. In transportation, I refer to it as augmented intelligence. It's still a human-centric process, but we're giving that human the tools to do their jobs better, 
more efficient to handle larger volumes. And guess what? At the end of the day, they're going to do their job better, which also helps with retention and attraction of talent because that, Joe, is also one of the big things, right? Don't forget that if we figure out inflation, interest rates, the economy, recession, or don't call it recession, the war in Ukraine, fuel price, we figure all that out. Guess what's not going to change in the U.S. by end of next year is talent, the availability of talent, because we are looking at some of the lowest unemployment rates in 50, 60 years. And you hear a lot of people maybe losing their job, but for every job person looking for a job, there's two job openings. So it's going to be very important. The way people do business, the way they use technology in their organization is going to be a vital element to also attract the best talent. Yeah. Yeah. And I always say it on my podcast, I'm a, one of the younger baby boomers. I think there's one year younger than me. And there's 400,000 fewer people in the generation behind us. So we're going to have a gap. And then we're also, much of the much of the people listening to this podcast um, are, are much better off than their parents and their children are even better off than they are. And I say, who is raising people who are going to want to work in the warehouse? I know my daughters aren't working. My, I got, by the way, I got one of my daughters to go work at an automotive manufacturing facility for six weeks between college. Best thing she could have done. She did not enjoy it. <laughs> but when she got out and she was in procurement, she said, I said, you forevermore will know what a factory is like. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I fully agree, Joe. And one of the things I would say is that we're currently not doing a very good job of we should go to the high schools, and I know there's programs like CSCMP working with high schools, do a great job there. But going into high schools and really telling these kids as to where the opportunities are, because I think we're all in the U.S. being a little bit, and I can say that because I'm Belgian. I didn't grow up here. I didn't go to school here. But everyone here has this thing in their head. i got to go to Harvard or MIT or, or one of the big schools. And if you're not, you're not going to be worth anything. We need to tell kids when they're high school age, it's like we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need other trades, and that, hey, it's perfectly all right to go to trade school. It's perfectly all right to go to community college. Actually, I have one kid who's in community college, another one starting community college. They're great schools. And you, you know what? All these professors or a lot of professors that are working in these schools where your kids are paying 40 to 70 grand a year. A lot of those guys also teach at community college. Oh, yeah. The U.S. has incredible yeah. community colleges. So we need to disperse the talent so that we are well-equipped in the future to have people in all those rooms because you probably have the same. If you have a water leak, how easy is it for you to get oh, a yeah. You, yeah, yeah it's, it, those skilled trades are getting very good money. So I want to switch gears on you again. Who's the sweet spot for Project 44? Who do you guys work with? Well, that's the great thing about our company is that we are not a niche vendor. And, and the other thing is visibility has become one of those really democratized solutions, whereas TMS took 30 years to go from, hey, if you're not a multi-billion dollar company, you can't use it. Visibility from the back, you see a lot of small companies using it to the largest. But we really focus on three main elements. It's retail, manufacturing, and then the 3PL and logistics industries. But if you look at our customer base, now over 1,400 customers worldwide, Whoa. we handle any industry out there, automotive. We have a lot of companies that are automotive manufacturers in tier one, two, three suppliers to automotive. We're in CPG, we're in healthcare, we're in pharma. We're, the last one I think that we added was government, but we're really in all of those different industries because guess what? Visibility is something everyone needs. If you're providing a service, or a product to someone, or even as a carrier, everyone needs to have that, that visibility and everyone needs data, right? I think the three main elements companies are currently looking at from a technology perspective, it's advanced analytics, it's visibility, and it's AI. And to be honest, if you look at visibility platforms, they use a lot of advanced analytics and they use a lot of AI. So it all comes perfectly together in that solution. Excellent. Excellent. So I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Bart. Who else should I have on my podcast? Who's killing it in the space? There are so many, but one person that really comes to mind, and, and I name him not just because he's also a very good friend, but because I think he comes from an industry that typically is looked at as a little bit more traditional and conservative, the LTL 
carrier industry. Oh, yeah. Gentleman, Pat Martin, actually has been working for Estes for a long time. I would say Estes has been a company that has been at the forefront of technology for a long time. We're doing major investments in cool companies like Cubix and Trucker Tools and all got uh, sold and made a great exit. And they continue to do that. And Pat, besides working for Estes, also got into the venture world, has his own fund where he works with other people. And what's really cool is we work with a lot of kind of the new and upcoming talent, the young technology entrepreneurs. And I think he can give you both sides, both of like traditionally what have we seen in a very traditional. I think you're very familiar, Joe, with the LTL. Oh, I've worked with Estes a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and great, then what do we see now from the brightest and, and coolest idea that's out there? That's one great thing that and people can say, well, there's a lot of hype around logistics technology and all the VC money that's gone in there, but it's allowed so much more technology to go, not just on the shipper side, there's so much cool technology on the broker side, on the carrier side, who traditionally have not been innovative for a long time. Right. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned earlier on about they didn't call it supply chain when you went to school. And I remember I got a call from a recruiter. I said this before on my podcast, but I remember them saying, we really need a good supply chain guy like you for this that was a recruiter and we want you to come and do this. And I was like, what the hell's a supply chain? And I was working in automotive. I'm like, I'm sitting in the biggest, bad, one of the biggest, baddest supply chains on earth, but we didn't ever call it supply chain. And by the way, back then, I would have never looked at logistics as a great space to be in. It was just kind of this, there's nothing new under the sun. And boy, has that changed in the last decade. It has really exploded, not only in the importance during COVID, but even before that, people were saying, and for good reason, they were behind the curve on technology because it's really hard to wire, again, this global phenomenon, which is the supply chain. It's really easy to control the technology in your four walls and even with your tier one suppliers. It's not as easy to say, yeah, those Chinese guys that you've never met that you buy stuff from, you know, got to get them connected. So, yeah, I think, Joe, you, you mentioned in the beginning, right? Logistics was the tail, you know, of the dog, right? And I would say we're probably were that flea at the end of the tail of the dog. Well, guess what? It's now the tail wagging the dog, right? <laughs> That's been the major difference. And, and I think people, whether you're a 3PL or you're a shipper, many people see logistics as a major differentiator because products have been standardized. You could have the best product out there. How different really is it unless you're very niche market. Look at an Amazon, right? There's so many other online marketplaces there. Sell the same product. Sometimes Amazon doesn't have the best price, but I would say they're the they most consistent in the way they deliver and fulfill. And I, I talk about it from a perspective of authenticity. What is authenticity? Is being able to truly fulfill on the customer promise. And in supply chain, we don't plan the supply chain, right, in logistics, but our role is to take part of that fulfillment. And so if you look at the customer experience, it has become almost synonymous with the customer experience. Delivery experience is the customer experience, is the main way to impact customers and consumers, and especially on the consumers. You want them to come back? You better handle that last part in the, in the right way. Because your consumers are not very forgiving, right? And so, um, yeah. And then the last thing I will add, we talked a little bit about talent, right? I do some speaking and we work with several universities as well because they're part of our very large ecosystem of partners. The one thing I will say is seeing how many kids are currently or young adults are, are choosing to go into supply chain as a job. And I will say, having seen it firsthand, we have some of the best, best talent going into supply chain. So I'm thinking like supply chain, although we have all this complexity, we're going to be in really good hands with all these kids coming from universities. Yeah, we, we become the cool kids, Bart. <laughs> took a long time, you know, but maybe when we retire, they will give us a medal. You know? Yeah, exactly. So what I'll do, Bart, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to your website, and any other links you and your marketing team give me, I'll put those in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you on Project 44. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy man traveling all over the world, but you gave us a really good sense for not only what where Project 44 was, but where it came from, but also where it's going. And uh, it's exciting times. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on the on the show, Joe. Talking a little bit about my personal journey, Project 44's journey. Yeah, if anyone has any questions, we always look forward to partnering with companies, whether tech partners, whether you're going to be a customer partner. And we look forward to the opportunity to go in on this journey with you guys. Thank you, Bart. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.